Going to be in the book of 1 Peter. Ladies, welcome back from the retreat. I've been given pretty strict instructions that this needs to be, a, uh, this needs to be an entertaining and good sermon or I'm going to lose you guys. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. I'm excited about this book. I hope that comes through, but uh, we'll see how it goes, I guess. Uh, but it is a big day, starting a new series. That's always a big thing for us because we tend to be in books for quite a long time. I'm not sure exactly how long we're going to be in these books just yet. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, it should carry us through most of the fall. I think it may get us uh, up, uh, up to the, uh, our Christmas series, but I'm not sure about that yet. We'll have to figure that one out. Um, but I'm excited to be able to dive into this book. I've enjoyed studying it and, and preparing to, to be able to teach it. Uh, I'm a little intimidated, as I think I've learned that I am just with every book that I get into. Uh, but First Peter is notorious, uh, well, First and Second Peter, notorious for having some really confusing stuff uh, in, their, uh, in, in these books. Uh, I, I, I laugh because uh, Peter talks about Paul's teaching and says, I know that some of what Paul says is really confusing, and I just want to be like, Peter... You are worse. Uh, this stuff is confusing. I mean, there's some stuff in here that's, that's tough. Uh, but we're going to work through it, and we'll see, we'll see where God teaches. There's also uh, plenty of hot-button issues. Uh, there's, there, we're we're going to talk about uh, men and women, husbands and wives. We're going to talk about... Uh, we're going to talk about the relationship of, a, of Christians to the government. Does that sound like maybe a relevant topic right now? Uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, we're going to talk about uh, things like election and God's sovereignty. We're going to talk about uh, baptism. We're, we got. We're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus. We're going to do. We're, we're just going to roll them all out there and see where we all land on these things. And uh, at some point, I'll probably make you all mad. But uh, just going to go through and teach the book. That's the goal. Uh, starting this morning. So uh, hopefully, you guys are as excited as I am. I'm always excited about starting a new series. Um, so let's dive in here as we get as we get started. Uh, Emily has an app on her phone. Uh, it's it's a it's it's a countdown app. Uh, I I know uh, Chris isn't here this morning, but I know Chris uses this type of app too, where uh, you put in a certain date, and the only thing that that app does is count down the days until something happens. Whatever it is you want to put in there, uh, you can put in there. But it's it's this countdown. Uh, app and you, you put it in there and it counts down and it gives you the number of days until a given uh, event. Uh, if you know my wife, then you know that she kind of lives for vacations. She, she builds life around vacations. That's what she loves to do. Uh, and if you know my family, you know that Disney vacations really have a special heart or special place uh, in our hearts. And right now, uh, Emily's app has got a certain amount of days until, uh, until we to head back to the Magic Kingdom and uh, enjoy another trip to uh, Disney. And that little app makes Emily smile every time that she opens it up. She will, uh, she will show it to the kids. She'll be like, guess how many days we have left. Um, we, we haven't done it in a while, but there's, there's an app on our like Amazon Alexa thing too where you can say, hey, Alexa, how many days do we have until whatever? Uh, and it will, it, it will tell you how many are there. And so I, our family loves to do this. And, and why is that? Why does a simple little app that all it does is tell you how many days you have until you have something, which reminds you that you don't have that thing, uh, why is it that uh, that is such a... A, a, that is something that so many people like to do. Why is it that it brings a smile to our face? As humans, why does the anticipation 
of an event, even though it may bring us like, it, it make us a little bit anxious, make us charge up, but it, it almost universally brings us joy if we're talking about an event, of course, that we want to happen. Uh, the anticipation of that event brings us joy. Sometimes the anticipation can be even more fun than the actual event. I'm thinking about, I don't know how many of you guys do Advent calendars. Uh, if you do the Advent calendars and you, you get to count stuff up, I remember whenever I was a kid going to my grandma's house and she had a, uh, a calendar up on the wall and I would be the one that would get to move the Santa along the way on the, the calendar on the wall and I love that, uh, to, to just mark the days until, until Christmas got there. Now don't get me wrong, I loved Christmas, but I loved the anticipation and the build-up to Christmas uh, as well. Why is it that that works that way? That if we just let our minds wander just for uh, a moment to get to another place in the future, it can somehow impact our mood and our view of our present situation. Sometimes a little countdown app is all you need to pull through a bad day or a slow afternoon. I wonder why that is. I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure I have a good answer. I'm not a psychologist. I can't tell you what is going on in that moment in our heads. But I know, I know that it happens. I know that it's true. And I think it's probably true for most of you too. And it's my hope that with this new series, Not Home Yet, that it will serve as kind of a countdown app of sorts for us. It will serve as a reminder of what's coming for us. That's not all that it's going to do. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But that is at least part of what I hope this series will do. If you were here this spring, you know we spent the entire spring. We started, well, actually winter. We started in January, spent the entire spring working our way through several books of the Old Testament, but primarily based our home base of Ezra and Nehemiah. We called that series The Long Road Home. Personally, I loved that series. It's one of my favorite series that I've ever done, way more than I thought I was going to love that series, if I'm completely uh, honest. I loved to be able to study that. I never really had spent much time in my own study exploring the idea of exile and that longing for home that we all have, but it's been very helpful for me to understand the story uh, of Scripture, and I hope that it was a blessing to you as well. Uh, It's been very helpful for me to gain some clarity about where I am in this world and where I am going and how all of that plays together. And as we studied those books and considered the idea of home and the idea of exile, and and we considered this idea of longing for something more and why that is universally true among all people. I want to revisit two of the definitions that we've been using uh, for exile. And I'll explain why uh, in just a second. So let's, re- let's, let's just a reminder of the two definitions we use for the word exile. And if you're out there thinking, man, we're going to talk about this again? That, that was a lot that we talked about this. But I promise, just hang on with me. This will be, it, I'll, I'll explain to you why we're going to spend so much more time in this same theme. So the first definition that we had, this was the long one, kind of the more like textbook definition. Exile is the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home to which one belongs, yet for the present, one is unable to return there. This sense of deep loss may be compounded by a sense of guilt stemming from the knowledge that the exiles from sin, especially our own sin. It's that first sentence especially that will play out a lot in this book. 
It's the knowledge that there's a home to which we belong, yet for the present we are unable to return to that, to that home. And then the short definition that we used, exile is a memory of a place you've never been, but deeply long to return. Now you're going to have to go back and listen to all those messages throughout the, the whole spring to hear me basically uh, you know, pull out the details of those definitions and why those definitions are true. But these definitions will help us again as we go through First Peter. As we finished our series, we considered that uh, some of the bigger themes of, uh, of exile, we talked about how that's all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from the opening chapter to the finishing chapter uh, of the Bible. And we ended on this hopeful note that one day we will truly know home. And it will be a place like no other, for it will be in the very presence of God. That's how we ended talking about uh, the, the, the overall storyline of Scripture. But it also kind of ends on a bit of a somber note as well. As we end the book of Nehemiah, what we see is that Nehemiah, despite all his efforts to rebuild the wall and to create a home uh, for, for, for his people that had been destroyed, nothing's quite playing out the way that he wanted. And home isn't quite what he thought it was going to be. And we're reminded that we are not home yet. So the question then becomes, what do we do with that? Not home yet. We're stuck in this place, right? Where we know that there will be a time when we get home, and that time will be full of joy, and it will be full of, of, of assurance and, and, and worship and all the things that our heart craves. And it will be a peace like nothing we've ever known. We know that that day is coming. But that day is not here yet. So now we're still here. So what do we do with that? Do we just kind of wait around? Do we just sit at home? Do we just kind of lay back and say, well, one day God will call me home. One day Jesus will come back and I'll be home. And we just kind of sit back and wait for the moment and wait for the day. Is that what we do? Maybe we even wait with a smile on our face. Like we're looking at our own little countdown. Maybe we look with that smile on our face and we're like, oh man, that day will be great. And that gives us hope and that gives us joy. I hope that that is true. We're not there, but the anticipation can pull us through. That's not a bad strategy. In fact, it's one that the Bible employs many times. Listen to Paul's teaching in uh, the book of Titus as he writes to a pastor there. Listen, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How do we live the self-right? How do we live the, 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 the upright and godly uh, godly lives in the present age by waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works so what's pushing us to good works it's the way in which we wait for the day when jesus returns so that is a, a, a very plausible option for us, one that we will address later on uh, in 1 Peter and especially, especially 2 Peter. But is that all that we're to do? Just sit back and wait 
and let that be something that kind of spurs us on a little bit? Or is there something else to how we're called to live? You see, here's the problem with the countdown apps for me and why I don't have any on my phone. Because I am way too much of a realist. I am way too much of a person who says, yeah, that's great that that's going to happen in 37 days, 14 hours, and 22 minutes. But I've got to make it through the next 37 days and whatever else I just said. I made that all up, so I can't remember what I said. But I've got to make it through all of that. And then those 37 days look pretty daunting to me at that point. Maybe that's a realist, maybe it's a pessimist. I'm not sure which one it is. But I'm somewhere in there, and i got to figure out, how do I make it through the rest of this time? Yeah, that's great what's coming, but i still got to go to work. i still got to do a job. i still got to do some laundry. i still gotta, I still got to live life and do what has to happen. You see, the countdown apps may help, but you still got to get through another day. You still have to work. You still have to endure. You still have to make it through. So how does the, how does the Bible handle this tension? That there is something out there for us one day, but today is still very much a reality and not one that we can shirk or ignore. Are we given instructions just to wait? Is that it? Or do we have more to it? We're not even given a date for our countdown. If I were to put in an app and say, this is the day I'm going home, I don't even have a date. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I can't put any kind of, uh, any, any kind of like uh, thing in there. You know, when is Jesus coming back? One day. Well, well one day when? Soon. Okay, well, well, well how soon? Well, to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So good luck with that. Good luck trying to figure out when it is that he's coming back. Like, thanks a lot. That doesn't help me at all in trying to estimate this. I need, I need to know when it is that he's coming back and when I can look forward to something. And that's what this series is all about. It's about the acknowledgement that while we may not be home, we are still here. And if we're still here, then we've got to figure out how to function in this world that is broken, that is full of sin, that is full of darkness, that is full of pain, that is full of suffering, and we are not delivered from any of it as Christians. It is all very prevalent and right there for us. In fact, what Peter will tell us is not only are we not delivered from it, we kind of signed up for it whenever we decided to follow Jesus. Whenever he called us, we kind of signed up for it. So not only is suffering not, on, not off the table for us, suffering is very much a part of what it means to be a Christian. And if we're still here, we've got to figure out how to function in this world until the day Jesus comes or till the day that we go to him. You know, God could have left us in the dark totally. He could have just said, there's a better day coming. Look forward to that day. I'll see you then. And then he could have just peaced out, said, I'm gone, see y'all later. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. He gives us the story of Scripture. He gives us the story of what is happening. He gives us First and Second Peter. 
It's not the only thing he gives us, but he gives us first and second Peter, and it is really, really good at teaching us how to hold those two truths together in the same place. Teaching us how to look forward to the day when we are home, and then how to live today when we are very much not home. It's what Peter's writing about, how to do it. So that we aren't just thinking, oh man, I can't wait till that day when I get to go home to be with Jesus. But instead we are told how to live and how to wait, especially. How to wait as exiles. We're told how to do it as those that are longing for home, but those that are suffering here. So this series is entitled, Not Home Yet, An Exile's Guide to Living and Waiting. It's going to put a lot of hands and feet on on a lot of the bigger concepts that we've talked about so far this year. Now, before we look at this first chapter of of Peter this morning, we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, working through a text this morning, just a few verses, but uh, before we look at the first chapter, we need to consider a couple of things so we have the right context for the book and you understand who Peter is writing to. First, the book is called First Peter because it's written by Peter, and it's the first of two letters that we have from him. The same Peter that denied Jesus uh, right before he was crucified, the same one that was restored on the beach after Jesus' resurrection, whenever Jesus said, feed my sheep three different times, and restored Peter back to his ministry and forgave him. The same one that Jesus seems to lean on as the leader of the apostles. The same one that became the de facto leader at Pentecost when he stood up and preached a message in which 3,000 people at least got saved and became uh, followers of this risen Jesus. The same one that in the book of Acts is imprisoned for preaching about Jesus and says, I can't do anything but that. And I'm not going to stop. He's writing, that, that's the guy who's writing this book. And he's writing uh, probably in, in Rome in the early like 60 to 62, 63 AD, somewhere in there. Uh, he's writing this letter. And he assumes that all throughout the Roman Empire, they're starting to feel some of the things that he's beginning to witness firsthand there in Rome. Nero is the emperor. If you know anything about Nero's reign, you know that he was especially terrible to Christians, very violent in his persecution of Christians. Now, the thing about this is most of that is pretty localized around Rome. It's not throughout the entire Roman Empire. It's about 100 years later before really the entire Roman Empire begins this level of persecution. Nero's is primarily right around Rome, but Peter assumes that if that's happening in Rome, that means persecution is ramping up all throughout the empire. So he writes a letter to be read at all different churches covering a a vast territory uh, of the area where this letter would go from church to church and be read to the churches as encouragement and instruction for them. So that's the context of what we're doing. Churches beginning to feel the thumb of of societal and governmental oppression and persecution. Not to the level of being killed yet, where Peter's writing these letters, but enough that they're feeling it. Enough that they're being ostracized. Enough to know that things are going to get worse before they're going to get better. Enough for them to be afraid. 
That's who Peter's writing to. And so I'm going to start our study of 1 Peter, and I'm going to do something uh, a little bit different. I was this close to deciding to read the entire book of 1 Peter this morning and letting that just be our message this morning. I'm not going to do that. I changed my mind on that, decided not to do it, but I am going to read the entire first chapter of 1 Peter because I think in order to understand where we're going, you need to hear some of these themes that he brings out here in 1 Peter. So we're going to go through this, and we're going to see why we're still talking about exile as we do this. So I'm going to read the entire first chapter of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hang on for just a second here. So I, I read the introduction there, the, the, the welcome, the, how Peter begins this. And I just want you to put yourself, 62 AD, you are in Cappadocia and a church, and you are hearing this letter being read to you. you your, your, your neighbor who was found out as a Christian just had his house destroyed. You've heard about t- things going really bad in Rome, and you're wondering how, things, how bad things are going to get for you. You've already lost your job because they found out you were a Christian. You're in real danger of not being able to provide for your family. And then this is uh, a, a person shows up reading this letter saying it's from Peter, the chief, uh, the chief apostle, the leader of those that were followers of Jesus. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to, one, to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways 
inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience for the truth, to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fa- falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So as you can see, that's one chapter in First Peter, and it is dense. It is dense. He packs a lot into every verse. He covers a lot of ground. There are some massive theological things that we've got to work through and that we've got to talk about. Things that even you just sitting there reading it are probably like, ooh, I wonder what that's about. Oh, man, I wonder what that means. Oh, does he really mean that? Man, that happens all throughout this book. But remember, Peter is writing this book not as a, as a theological uh, uh, study for them. He's writing this to encourage them. He's writing this to, to help them push through the suffering, to help them push through the persecution. He's writing this to make sure that they understand where their hope is. You see how often he says that about where their hope is. I can't wait to be able to unpack so much of this. This morning, in the little bit of time that we have left, I just want to wade into the deep waters just a little bit. We may get a little bit over our heads, but I think we'll be, I think we'll be all right this morning, and then we'll get a little bit deeper as we continue to go. I just want to look at the first, really, two verses, and that's all we'll cover this morning. I'll read them again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I think it's interesting how he, he, he opens this up. He's not just writing to one city specifically, but multiple cities, multiple churches. I want you to think about how encouraging just that little bit would have been to hear if you were at one of these churches. You see, in today's world, we're used to being connected to churches all over the world. We're used to knowing what is happening in Afghanistan. We're used to knowing what is happening uh, to the the church in China, at least in some measure. We're used to knowing what is happening to the church down the road, to the church in Knoxville, to the church in California, to the church all over the place. And we know to pray for them. And we know to, to consider what is happening at those churches. But if you're in the midst of suffering, one of the things that Satan can use against you is that Satan will convince you that you are alone in your suffering. That you are by yourself and no one else is enduring what you are enduring. But as Peter begins this letter and he says to read this at all these churches, what immediately happens is he communicates to these churches, you know what? You're not alone. This letter is going to all these churches because they are all enduring what you are enduring. Sometimes the the matter of enduring persecution and suffering is simply a matter of knowing you're not alone in your endurance. You're not alone in your suffering. Someone else is there with you in the midst of it. 
So he opens it up and he says, this is happening all throughout these places. And I hope that you understand that. And he begins and he calls them all of these these things. He, He uses a term that I think defines the entire book and will define our entire study of the book. He calls them at the very beginning to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. That is a complete contradiction in terms. That is like jumbo shrimp. It doesn't go together. Those two things don't make sense together. Elect exiles don't, that doesn't work. You see, if if you are elect, then typically what that means is you have been chosen and set aside specifically. Typically, it would mean what we would associate with that is that there are privileges, that you have place, that you have power, you have recognition, that you're exalted in some form. But if you're in exile, it means you have none of those things, no power, no place, no privileges, no recognition. But Peter puts them right there together for us. And he doesn't really explain it, but he does as he goes throughout the rest of this book. He talks about, in chapter 2, we'll see how he calls them strangers. Some, some would call them sojourners or aliens, it says in there. Like, we are in a place that's not ours. A place foreign to us. And that they're all in a place that is not their home. They are exiles. Enduring as they receive these letters. But even in the midst of being exiles, they are still a special people. They are the chosen rejects. They are the specially called ones that nobody wants. They are the elect exiles. It sets up the dynamic for the whole letter. Two identities are given. Which one wins? Which one is more important to us? I think this tension is honestly at the heart of the Christian life. Holding these two things together. Go too far in either direction and you'll not be looking at the Christian faith anymore. Look too much at being elect and you'll inevitably think too highly of yourself. That you are something special, that something has gotten you there. You'll start to demand things that are not promised to us in Scripture. You'll start feeling like you're not getting the perks you deserve. You'll start feeling like you're not getting all that should be yours. After all, aren't we sons and daughters of the king? Have you guys heard that language before? As sons and daughters of the king, aren't we, aren't we entitled to all the, 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 the rights and, the, the, the rights and all the, the stuff that comes with that? Think too much about being elect, and you'll start to think that you should get everything that you want. No, the counter to that is to remember that we are exiles, that we are a people with no home and no power by which to stand and demand anything from others. To clamor for that power will kill us as sure as drinking poison. But living only in exile with no sense of where our home is, uh, but instead just what our future holds. The the flip side of that is, is, is if we live as exiles, but we forget about the elect part, is that we, 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 we tend to forget what is before us. It's living life with no countdown app, no hope of something that is to come, no hope of something that is in the future. We're just kind of ticking away moment by moment. No purpose. The suffering is just there so that we suffer. We are exiles for the sake of being exiled. Sufferers for the sake of being sufferers. 
Life isn't moving towards something. So we have to hold these in tension. We must always remember that we are exiles, but we also must remember that you are not only an exile. You are an an elect exile. So let me ask you, if you were to write a letter to address a bunch of Christians that were being verbally abused, societally ostracized and cast out, Christians that, that, that were seeing persecution but have not, and seeing it start to grow kind of intensity, how would you write a letter? What would you begin with? How would you open it up for them? How would you encourage them? What would be your go-to to help push them through? Peter chooses something that today most would call very controversial. He doesn't bat an eye, though. Not only does he not bat an eye, he's going to beat us over the head with it all throughout this book. He's going to talk about it a lot. He chooses election as his means of encouragement for these men and women. He chooses election as his means of encouragement for these men and women. Now, today, talking about God's election of his people means, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about elections like voting or anything. I'm talking about God's choice of us. His foreknowledge, foreknown choice, as it says a couple of times there in the first chapter. And talking about God's election of his people means you probably are about to get in a theological fight with somebody. If we bring up election and God's sovereign choice, we're about to have a theological throwdown. We're about to really go at it and debate what, what, that, what that means. But Peter doesn't use this as a theological talking point. He doesn't use this as a, as a case to make an argument. Many hours have been spent talking and much ink has been spilled discussing this idea. And listen, I have no bones to pick with anyone on this topic. I'm not here to pick a fight. I simply want to see what Peter says and teach what Peter says. That's my goal here. He wants to address these suffering Christians, and he does so first and foremost by by reminding them of their calling and the fact that they have indeed been chosen, that they are a chosen people. I cannot get around what it says here, nor would I try. When addressing a suffering, hurting, confused people that have no political identity, no future hopes of success, no future hopes of upward mobility, no societal standing, when things are getting worse for them, not better, he begins by discussing election. And why does he do that? It's because he wants them to see that their hope doesn't rest in any of those other things. It doesn't rest in upward mobility or societal influence. It doesn't rest in political identity or political power. Instead, their hope is found in one thing and one thing only. That God, before the foundation of the world, had already set his mercy on them. And they are now recipients of that mercy. And upon that truth, that assurance, they can rest their entire life. Peter writes that according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, they are now elect. That word foreknowledge carries with it the sense of action. 
So this is not simply a matter of God sitting back and passively knowing something that happens in the future. This is not God sitting back and saying, I knew that you all were going to pick me, so that's how this all works. No, no, no. This word foreknowledge is, is something that acts. It's, it's an acting thing. His foreknowledge is his election. It elects. It is the foreknowledge that is the driving force of the election. Peter gives three aspects of election here. That's the first one. That the Father set his love on us, and this is, and this is how he foreknew our election. Because he knew that choice was going to be made. The second aspect of election is the work of the Spirit in our election. It is the Father that sets His love on us and the Spirit that sanctifies us as a result of that love from the Father. And then third, we see the purpose of election and the means by which it is secured. The purpose, obedience to Jesus. The means, the blood of Christ. All three of those things are there. So in the opening verse of 1 Peter, we have a theologically rich introduction that brings to bear all the members of the Trinity to the forefront of a suffering people. The Father knows us and set His love on us. The Spirit sanctifies us that we may be obedient to Christ, the one that secured that election through His blood. That's what Peter has to say about election. Now, if that makes you nervous, he'll also go on to say that we need to make our calling and election sure. How do those work together? You'll have to wait, because I'm still working through that one. How do the, but that's how this is. You see, there is, a, there is a tension that is within all of Scripture. He's going to say that the election is based on God's foreknowledge, and then later he's going to tell us to make sure that we make our calling and election sure. Those all work together. They are not in contradiction with one another. But he has no he has no qualms about calling us to action, nor does he have any qualms about speaking of God's action in electing us. So before we're giving, given anything to do in this book, before we're given our instructions of how to act, how to behave, before we're given our guide to living and waiting, the first thing that Peter tells us is that we need to know who we are. We are already elect. And this was done before the foundation of the world. And it is secured by the blood of Christ. So how do you know if you are elect? You know, that's the next question that flows from this. How do you know if you're one of those? He's writing to these churches here. How do they hear this and they think, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm just kind of here, I'm kind of on the outside. How do you know if you're one of the ones that is elect? If, you're, if you think you're not one of the ones, are you just kind of out of luck? Has it passed you by and you just didn't get picked? Like you're the, you're the kid in gym class that the teams are full and you just don't get to be on a team now? Is that how this works? Now, here's the deal, and I want you all to hear me on this. If you will come to Jesus, if you will come to him, and if you will plead mercy for your sin and you will trust in the atoning blood of Christ to cover that sin. That's how you know if you're elect. If you come to Christ, that's how you know. 
Because only the elect will do that. Because if he has called you, listen to how Paul, Peter, I'm sorry, listen to how Paul says this in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Two words that make people really nervous. Foreknew, predestined. But they're there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If God calls you, he will bring you, and you will respond. So we are elect. But the other part of our identity is that we are exiles. A people in waiting. A people with no home. Not here anyway. So we live as if those two things are true. The world is not our home. And God has saved us based on his sovereign will and to obedience in Jesus. So this morning as we close, I want to encourage those of you that have per perhaps found this world to be a discouraging place. If you're discouraged by the politics that you see, you're discouraged by the somberness of the daily COVID discussion. If you're simply discouraged by things going on around you, maybe you just are dealing with things that don't have anything to do with politics or COVID. It just has to do with living in a broken world. Simply want to remind us that we are not home yet. But Peter wants us to remember that while we may not be home, we belong to God. We are His through and through, even when we are far, far from home. So where are you this morning? Is that, is that something you need to figure out and come to terms with this morning? Are you wondering if you're too late? Are you wondering if you've been passed over? Are you wondering if you've done too much or that election couldn't possibly be for you? then know this. Election has nothing to do with you. It is God's choice. You simply need to respond. Come to Jesus. Trust his mercy. Trust his forgiveness. If you will do that, he will hear you, and he will forgive you, and you will be his. You simply need to come. Jesus says anyone can come that will. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, if you will come, you too can claim this promise that you are an elect exile that you do have a home you are going to. But until that day, you find your hope in Jesus Christ and his, for, his forgiveness for you and what he has secured on the cross. This morning, I hope that you won't leave here before you come to terms with that and before you deal with that, that you will come to him and cast yourself on him. I'm going to pray. After I pray, I'll be back there in the back. I'll be happy to pray with anyone else that would want to be a part, that, would, that wants to talk. I'll be happy to stick around and talk with anyone afterwards. 
But as we begin this book, that, that paradigm, elect exiles, that tension will be what we'll be holding, hold, holding together all throughout this book. And I think it will be what holds us together in the midst of a world that is broken, but a God that has not forgotten us in that world. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we deal with, with heavy realities of a broken world. We deal with heavy realities of a world that is not our home and feels like it more and more every day. Father, we claim the hope that there is a place that will be our home and that you have secured for us that home through the blood of Christ. Father, help us to understand how these things work together. Father, where mystery is, is what you have given us, let us be comfortable with mystery. But where you have made it clear in your word, let us not shrink back, but instead be encouraged by these truths. That you have redeemed us. You have saved us. You have purchased for us our salvation. And you have done so based on nothing in us. But simply based upon your grace and that you have set your love on us. Father, for those in here that do not know that love, I pray that they would come today, that they would not delay, that they would trust in you. Father, I pray for those in here that do not know that love, that do not know that forgiveness, that you would not let them just walk out, but instead that they would be, they would be pressed by the Spirit and that the wind of the Spirit would blow in their hearts. Father, for those in here that have trusted you, pray that they would take assurance that they would find hope just as Peter intended that we would all find hope in knowing that we are yours and you will not let us go no matter how far from home we are it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.